God, have mercy on us. That's your prayer for the day. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us do something positive here. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Faith Podcast for January 2024. I am your host, Jonathan Butcher, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Tim Nelson. Happy New Year, man. Happy New Year. There's a lot of Tim Nelsons out there, but I'm the one that you're talking to now. You're the only one that counts in my book. Aw, thanks, man. Of course, I don't know any other ones, and there may be better ones, if we're being totally honest. I don't know. I wasn't even the first one in my family. My uncle is a Tim Nelson, and then I've got other... Yeah, I've got like two Uncle Tims. It's like my... There was like no creativity in the whole situation. Okay. All right, Tim. Well, so we're in that period where like we always get to around this time of the year where it's a brand new year, but we're still kind of stuck in 2023 because there's still like movies we should be watching for the Oscars and stuff like that. The Oscar nominations as of this recording are going to be announced, I believe, next week. And so that will provide a little bit more of like, hey, we should watch these performances and these movies. So there's still like I feel like a lot to see in 2023. Mm -hmm. But the planning is is that this will be our last podcast until the Oscars will come back either in March or April one of those two because I always take February off to do my write-ups for the Oscars so this is kind of like you you would think normally December should be like kind of the last podcast of the year but January is always kind of our last of the movie season so our fiscal year is different than our calendar year <laughs> our movie year you know you that sounds that, right? so nerdy yeah no totally but that's true it is so our movie year is different than because the beginning of the movie years are like March mm-hmm. yeah, it is it's March that's like the start of the new of the new thing yeah Right. So if you've got some film you know is not going to win an Oscar, but you want less competition, then you then you run it in March. Totally. It's good stuff. You don't see a lot of March releases. Not a lot of March releases. Picture. It's pretty much the dumping ground. Yeah, it's like, uh, this didn't work, March. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. So we are here today to talk about a movie that has a ton of Oscar buzz behind it, and it'll probably be up for almost every major category. So we are going to talk about that today. And in fact, it just won the Golden globe for best picture musical or comedy so it's going to be a big contender and i'm excited Mm. to talk about it with you but before we dive in tim it's been a minute and i would be remiss if i didn't ask the question on everyone's mind tim what have you been watching anything i'm so glad you asked (laughs) well i watched a lot of musicals in the last two weeks Right, because you were in London. Because you go to the West End and it's like a third the price of going to a Broadway show, so you got to do it. Yeah, so it was yeah. fun. I watched the musicals based on movies. Oh. Like Back to the Future. I bet you'd oh. like that. Dude, how was the Back to the Future musical? Because I heard it was awesome. It's good from like a technical standpoint, like as far as story and like the music and stuff. It's just okay. okay. It's more like a, yeah, a thrill ride in all ages kind of thing. Doc Brown sings. Does he? Does he? He does quite a bit. <laughs> so bizarre it makes me think of like the original back to the future as a musical and how absurd that would be yeah (laughs) great scott yeah yeah like how would you go backwards oh i've been watching something else i've been watching a 10 year old series that everyone liked but i just never watched which is true detective did you ever see it 
Yes. I've seen all three seasons of True Detective, and I just started the first episode of the fourth season that came out last weekend. Yeah, totally. All in on True Detective. Love it. Love it. So creepy. So good. <laughs> you're on the season one, and you're doing the Matthew McConaughey See, thing. See, I'm doing the McConaughey thing, and I'm getting like flashbacks to Cadillac commercials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you remember those commercials? Oh, yeah. Totally. Because <laughs> he's, he's still just... like, philosophizing throughout that whole season, and he sounds like that waxing poetic voice, you know? Well, yeah. He's, he's, he gets all philosophical about about the Cadillacs, you know, and then I like Woody Harrelson is just such a deeply flawed person in that. Like he can't, he's like just cannot get it together. I and I think I mean that, that being the point of it, but yeah, there's such a yeah their camaraderie. Like it's sort of one of those things that like they set the bar so high in season one with those characters and the way they play off each other that like it is true that season one is still the best season of the show. But I've loved mm-hmm. every single season in its own right. Like everyone hated season two. I loved season two. I thought yeah. it was great. It's totally different. Of course it's different. It's darker, but like Colin Farrell gives such a good performance mm-hmm. in season two. It's a side of him that you've never seen before. So there's just a wow. lot to appreciate in that show. But you know who else just walked through season one of true detective and was raving about Matthew McConaughey friend of the pod. Dan, Dan Baker. Baker. <laughs> of course. Yep. What did he think? Was it like, so it's, it's pretty disturbing. He loved it. Like he, he kept texting me and he was like, I'm, I was up till like two in the morning last night. I can't stop watching true detective. It's great. So, so if you have something that 10 years later is still doing well, Mm-hmm. I, I'm just pretty impressed with it. So I'd put it like up there with the wire as far as like series. It's great. It's great. And it's just, it's a great idea for an anthology show, you know, a new case every season, new characters. It's perfect. Do you think like Fargo ripped off that concept of the anthology, like the detective <laughs> anthology? I think Fargo on the whole is a better show, but like, I just think like they're both great, but I think Fargo is like on a, just a different plane. Like I, it's amazing to me, but huh. yeah, no, I think, they're both really worth your time. Absolutely. And I'm excited for the new season of Fargo with Starch John Hamm. I'm excited to get into that oh, at some point. That will be interesting. I haven't seen him in anything lately. I know. So I've actually also watched an old show. But before I get to that, uh, so the two shows I've been watching are first, Only Murders in the Building, season two. Oh, yeah. Ugh. I can't do it anymore. I'm just so done with this show. Like, it's so annoying to me. It's, it's annoying. Have you watched this show at all? Like two episodes, I think, because my wife was like, you've got to see this show. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. It's so great. It's got, that's one with Steve Martin and Martin Short. And, and Selena Gomez. Yeah. Is that Selena Gomez in that? Yes. I always forget. I knew it was some young actor, but I couldn't remember. The thing about it is, is that Martin Short is the only reason to watch it now. Like, he's amazing. He should win Emmys. He should win all the awards. He's doing something in that show that is such like, it's a comic genius performance, and he is so running laps around everyone else that it's, like, embarrassing. I don't know what happened to Steve Martin. I don't know if it's, like, bad directing or what, but Steve, every line Steve Martin utters in that show sounds fake and canned and like he's reading it or like it's just the worst delivery possible. We know he can act. We've seen Steve Martin do great performances before, right? Yeah, but so he's always doing like more like soliloquy type, you know, like he's doing like bits. So yeah. like even Steve Martin, who's like a genius, like he really literally, he actually yeah. is a genius. He is. Um, he, he does better when he's doing like a one man show because he controls the timing. He controls everything and i feel like when even like if with the father of the bride stuff he was i feel like he was controlling he narrated half of those things so he's in right. total control and this true. i i think in this show after watching a couple episodes i feel like he seems almost like a bored character in some ways yeah i, I don't know how right. to describe that 
Right. He's just, it's more like a side bit. I think you're right. I think there's something to that where he's better in like a plane chase and automobiles kind of thing where he's the guy, you know, and he can kind of control things. It's like everything about his character seems off because he's sort of relegated to the side role. I don't know. It's just not working for me. Like, if you want to watch a show just for one great performance, be my guest. Martin Short is almost worth it, but I'm pretty much ready to give up on only murders. But isn't that cool? Because like, for a long time, Martin Short, he had no work. True. Yeah, I'm happy and, for him. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and now it's like, oh, and I think we're seeing a different side of him because I think his characters were so, I think he's, we've embraced the avant-garde Martin Short versus <laughs> just like the silly, like a silly, you know, SNL type Martin Short. Yeah, and the more eccentric. Yeah, the eccentric comedy. Yeah, but he's also like a genuinely like great actor. Like he grounds his role in that show in like actual authentic expression. Like he can, he feels like a real person. Whereas everything else about the show feels like it came out of some weird algorithm of what a show should be like. (laughs) It's like an AI show. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, hey Siri, create a show. Like that's what that show feels like. Steve Martin. If we can get Chevy Chase. No, no, no Chevy Chase. <laughs> no Chevy Chase. Should okay. even know. But that's okay. one. The show that is old that I recently watched, it's 20 years old, in fact, is Band of Brothers. This came out oh, in yeah. like 2001. Did you watch it at some point? I saw it also, yeah. Dude, I was so impressed with this show. Like, I couldn't have been more blown away by it. It kind of changed my life a little bit. I'm going to be honest. Hmm. Because you know me, like... I'm a pacifist. I think war is like the ultimate evil. We talk about it all the time on here and nothing's changed about that. But what the show gave me was kind of a different perspective on what these men went through. Like most of them didn't choose to be there. Their number was called. It was a draft, you know, and then they're put through absolute hell on earth in these situations because we've all seen like Saving Private Ryan and this show is basically like 10 hours of that and the cumulative effect really just makes you understand war in a way that you've never really seen it before. Just the whole idea of like, one wrong move at any point in your journey is like, oh, your legs are blown off and you're dead. Or you're just laying there in the middle of nowhere, you know, with bullets running around you and you can't move. Like, just it's just horrific. And what's great about the show is that it's not patriotic and it's not anti-war. They do such a good job with the tone of that where it's like they're just presenting what happened and the reality of every facet of war, and then you kind of draw your own conclusions. And I, yeah, it really, really blew me away. So if you have not seen Banner Brothers, if you're one of, like me, you've just been kept putting it off and you thought maybe it would be dated, it's not. It holds up. Watch it right now. It'll change your life. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely like a it's a cold winter's you know week and you want to watch a like a gigantic show. That's It's there for you. It, that that will like not let you down. It will not let you down. Right. The question I when I were I watched it recently, like probably in the last few months, and my I kept asking myself, why have I never seen this? I know it was one of those prestige shows that actually kind of changed the television landscape because it was one of the first ones that were like, hey, we're going to tell a story in ten parts, you know, and that's kind of become the standard format. But back then, it wasn't in 2001 right yeah. so you had to have like all you had to have tom hanks associated you had to have a spielberg connection spielberg. you had to yep. have all those things in order to actually tell to do the narrative here yeah it's amazing there's a few things i've watched in my life i'd say like a handful where i would say it's not just great it's actually important like it should actually be required mm. viewing for everyone because it's just in a very important perspective and i would say this is one of those times so check out Bander brothers 
All right, Tim. Well, we have a lot to talk about with our movie today, so let's get going here. So first off, theater experience. You recently saw Poor Things this last week, right? Yeah, my theater experience was... <laughs> I'm like going in to the theater and there's like three other people there. Three other people. Which is fine. Mm-hmm. Although I didn't expect it to be so weird to just have a couple people in the theater because there's a lot of, we'll get into this, there's a lot of sex in this movie. <laughs> so it's like the one guy and it's cold outside. So I have a jacket on and I was like, <laughs> oh man, do I seem like I'm a creeper? Oh no. That's Coming awful. in to check out this Emma Stone. You know what I mean? Coat. Like. <laughs> Right. And then I had something happen to me like that has never happened to me before. There's a couple and they were sitting behind me and they walk uh-huh. out and there's like one guy and this couple and me. Uh-huh. And the couple walks out, middle-aged, Midwestern couple. And uh, the guy looks at me and he's like, what did you think? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, I'm like, well, we have a podcast, but no, I didn't say that. Yeah. Uh, but like he gave me the look like he thought he had just like sat through like, Filth. Like he had watched filth or like we had been together at like, like a peep show or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, Oh, I was good. And he's like, Hmm. And he's like, he, it like had totally blown his sensibilities that away. So that he needed, funny, he ne- he wanted me to be like, what the hell did I just watch? But I was like, yeah. no, it's good. And he's like, Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me as we got out to like, you know, when your eyes begin to adjust to the light after the theater and like, yeah. it's midday. And so uh, the guy just kind of looks at me. You could tell he didn't trust me because I liked the movie. <laughs> totally. It was weird. I felt suspect. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. This is not a movie for everyone. I think that uh, Eddie, you should know that going in. This is probably not going to be most people's cup of tea. Let's just be fair about that. And that's okay. It's okay. Or if you're like, I'd say from like a standpoint of like if you are triggered by basically a lot of sex, like if this is, if it's the thing that's like, this is going to make it difficult for you. Yep. Might consider not watching it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's extreme on the sex front. There's no question about it. So I actually saw Poor Things back in December. It was toward the end of December that I watched this. I don't like doing that because like I want the movie to be fresh and I feel like I'm going to like forget things. But so I might need to rely on you a little more today. But I did see it in December. And you know where I saw it, Tim? I saw it at the Oriental. My like, yeah. I always say the Majestic's my favorite theater, but I feel like that might be my favorite theater just because it's so like just different. You know, it's only got three screens. It's just that beautiful, like ornate backdrop. It's a, it's a, show, it's a movie house. Like It's, it's, a, movie, it's like yeah. a palace. Yeah. It's a movie and palace. Do you know what was the best part of my Oriental experience is a friend of mine named Tim Nelson gave me a Mm. gift card about six years ago that never expires. And I walked right up to that that counter and I got two tickets for free and a large popcorn. Like came with it, and you did Wait, that so for you, me, Tim. You, you, I don't even. Re- okay, so this is terrible. I don't even remember giving <laughs> you that gift card. Wow. It's been in my wallet for uh, probably six years. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive, John. So, does, did you just forget? No, I just like kept meaning to go because I'm always usually uh, going to a Marcus or whatever. Like, it's just I don't know. It just never the stars didn't align. I haven't been there in ages, and I think the last couple times I went, I bought it ahead of time because it was a popular show and I knew it was like going to be a little scary with the ticket. But this was one where I just had a feeling it was late at night. I had a feeling that hardly anyone was going to be there and it was safe. So I did it. And I even have another one. I have well, you gave me two. I have one more what? free oriental oh, experience man. just waiting for me. I know. Dude, I love that theater. That's so thank cool you. Theater. Thank you for your gift. Oh, yeah. That was really nice. I don't remember it, but all right. <laughs> I know. 
So it was a great time at the Oriental. And it was a good crowd, too. It was actually like I saw one of the first days it came out, so it was packed. And it's a good movie to see with a big crowd because it's funny. And there's just a lot of moments where everyone's sort of like looking at each other like, are we watching this together? I guess we're watching this. <laughs> They're like, is it okay? Don't tell anybody I was here. Don't tell anyone I was here. <laughs> feel like Pee Wee Herman in there, huh? Don't tell my girlfriend. <laughs> I've cheated on my wife. Yeah. I didn't know what I've done when I walked in. Yeah, but basically... So what's the MMPA say about this? Mm, hard R, you know, strong graphic sex or something. But like, I don't know. how is that even possible? Because there's know. like stuff that's NC-17 that would even, like this would like blow its mind. Like what is NC-17 anymore, right? It doesn't even make sense. I know. Uh, yeah. So like, what's the movie that got an X? Is it Midnight Cowboy? Mm, yeah. It's one of the first ones. Right. So like, I know that's years and years ago, but I'm like, what do you need to get an X at this point? I can't even envision it. Yeah. Right. I'm with you. Well, Tim, why don't you describe what this movie's about? It's, it's a great transition. Uh, you know, just a typical story, guy meets girl, right? Everything's It's like good. the ultimate, I would describe it as the ultimate feminist movie. Yes. Like the ultimate. That's a good description. Like it makes Kill Bill weak. I would describe it as, I'm not, do you want a plot synopsis? Yeah, just a brief plot. So we got Bella, this girl named Bella, mm-hmm. played by Emma Stone, and she... So there's this guy, Willem Dafoe plays this sort of like weird doctor, surgeon guy who has a messed up face. He's yeah. like Dr. Frankenstein kind of. And yes. he uh, and it would be, this is Victorian era. So you're in England, mm-hmm. in London for parts of it. And it moves around a bit. So you're in a kind of a, play, a time and a place that's really male-centric in an empire, right? Yeah. So it's like the center of the empire. This guy is the most renowned doctor who can put a head on a head of a chicken on a pig. I mean, he could yep. do all he could do things that are magical, right? <laughs> Absurd things. Because he knows physiology so well, had a very abusive genius surgeon father. Yes. Anyway, so he's always trying to push the envelope and what he ends up doing is a woman jumps off a bridge, commits suicide, and they find her body so quickly that apparently they could not only bring her back to life, but she was pregnant and they could take the brain of the fetus, an infant brain, and they could put it in the head of a grown woman's body. And then they are tracking what happens. So there's another character who's like the student of the surgeon mm-hmm. and he is hired to basically track every moment of the life of this person, Bella. Right. So we basically meet her as, you know, she looks like a full-grown woman because that's her body, but she is, when we first meet her, she's an infant in her brain and she's just sort of like, you know, throwing things and acting like a toddler would, basically. And then we watch her throughout the movie growing up inside of her, maturing. Yeah. We're watching a grown woman become... But with an, inf- you know, obviously an infant's brain, but basically develop into a whole person. Yes. Yep. And she meets a person along the way named Duncan, played by Mark Ruffalo, who kind of... <laughs> I love Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> he's so good at this. I like want to talk about him right now. We can't get to it yet, but like he's so good. I know. Yeah. But he just like this sort of sleazeball guy who clearly sees a situation where he can have a lot of fun with this person. And then, yeah. So <laughs> she meets him and they go on an adventure together and uh, we'll get to that soon. But it's so good. So that's basically the movie. Yeah, good. It's very quirky. There's a lot going on. Not everyone's cup of... I think if you even explain that plot... Most most people will be like, mm, nah. 
No, thanks. It's like yeah. part of this whole weird thing. Apparently, this is like a movement of like these, since, I don't know what, I guess since the 90s or something, that's like Greek weird is what they call it. So it's okay. like weird. All these directors, these Greek directors are like totally, they love to jump into the weirdest thing they can. Yeah. And uh, like you saw the lobster probably. Yeah. Hated the lobster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So much. I love the lobster. I know a lot you of people did. hated it. I, I remember talking to people who were like angry when they came out. It was gross. Like the whole thing that was like a weird movie. You know me. I'm not easily disturbed, and there's nothing in it that's like blatantly like, oh, this is so evil or awful. But like whatever it was about that movie just rubbed me the wrong way from start to finish. Yeah. I was like, I feel gross. Like I just don't. So, like this. so one of the things they're into, and this like explains why they're because these are obviously not these plots can't happen, but they're symbols of things that, that are happening. But like even the lobster, like it's and with this film, they're obsessed with social controls. Mm. The idea being was like how who are the power people in power and how are they using this power and what means are they using to control other people and mold society Mm -hmm. especially in this victorian era which is very relevant when when you mentioned feminism i mean we're talking about a uh, society at that time where women are completely oppressed and at the mercy of men and you see this woman sort of in this surreal take rise above all of it yeah yeah so say hyper masculine women exist for the procreation even get this you know, they're either, it's either for procreation or sex, and uh, that's why they exist. Yeah, so it's very interesting that all the men are just ob- obsessed with Bella in this movie. Yes. And they like her. The more infantile she is, the more they're obsessed with her, which I thought was just insane. That's so true. <laughs> I know. Except for the one guy, the one actually like only decent good character in the movie, her uh, fiance, I guess. He's there for the long haul, and but yeah. Anyway, yeah, but it, there's caveats to it, which is he doesn't try to control or power or do anything. He doesn't try to have any power over her at all. Exactly. That's like the, that's like the critical part of that. But yeah, anyway, this is so thematic that it, like the plot serves the themes. So you're like, well, what kind of themes do I want? Okay. And then make an absurd plot. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, you're right. It's almost like you, you start with the themes first in this case. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I think so. I think you start out with, well, what am I going to say? And then how can I say it in the absolute bizarre way that yeah. will get everyone's attention and will get people going, what the heck just happened here? Like that poor Midwestern person behind mm-hmm. me. Yeah. They're like, what did you think? Because ah. <laughs> I'm scarred Help. for life. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah. They have like therapists outside waiting for you. <laughs> They're like, are you doing all right? Yeah. But it's supposed to, I think it's supposed to rattle us a little bit. Yeah. And definitely the sex, but like nothing about the, and the idea and prostitution too. Yeah. So you have sex, you have prostitution, but it's you know, the idea being that it's like a developmental thing for a human being, which is that you would, that a human being will, as they grow, will experiment sexually, will try to figure out their body, mm-hmm. will figure out what feels good, what doesn't, and then also kind of work into values. So it's not yeah. just sex. Sex, like that would be an early value. That's like, the first the same stage, as, right? Well, it's the same, right? The first stage. That, so we're watching Bella develop. And so we, the first stage is like, you know, food and then breaking things. And then yep. the way that she gets her needs met is to throw a fit. And then it's like not long after that for Bella, it's like sexual, like masturbation and sexual. So it's like uh, very kind of where we traditionally say low moral development. Yes. Like right. Pleasure basics. at all costs. It's like right. pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Pleasure, pain and anger. And then that's the moral development there. 
Yeah. And then we see her develop later on and she's, she's like, no, pleasure is important. But then she gets into philosophy and she gets into empowering herself and like Mm -hmm. uh, cultivating friendships. And yeah, it's just really interesting. There's even a sec, you know, there's even part of the movie where she like rather read than have sex, which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Emma Stone. The woman oh, of the I hour. I love Emma Stone. She's oh so my great. gosh, <laughs> Emma Stone! You're here. You're going to hear it right here. Emma Stone's going to win the Oscar for Best Actress. I don't see how it's possible that she won't. She's already won it for a, the Golden Globe. I just think it's pretty much set in stone at this point, and she deserves it. This was a great performance. Total showcase of her talent. Yeah. It's almost like you see her excited, like to take it on. It's like she's just able to do anything with this. I like it's an mm-hmm. actor's dream. This performance, I think. Yeah, I, I don't have any. I can't say anything else. I mean, I think exactly what you're saying is true. Is Emma Stone is brilliant in this. She's. I just am amazed by how how well she's able to play all these different stages. She's her language changes as she goes. So she yes. starts out like talking like a toddler. And then she, by the end, she's probably the most eloquent person in the film as far yep. as, you know, she shares ideas point. and feelings. So w- watching her do that, I mean, just if you just took development, right, even language, and you had an actor say, okay, you're going to develop like t- from zero to 30 um, right? in one yeah. film, like over the course of two hours, and every scene you're going to have to be cognizant of like where this person would be developmentally. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very impressive. It's challenging, and just the fact that she pulls it off, like, yeah, it's so difficult to... You get to play... You get to pretty much play every version of a character, right? You're, yeah, you're going to be a toddler now. You're going to be a teenager now. You're going to be an adult. And, yeah, it's it's just great. And she's come so far so fast. Like, I mean, I think the first movie I saw her in was probably, like, super bad. You remember that movie, Superbad, with Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah and McLovin and all that? It's yeah. a good movie. It's a good movie. I still stand it by is. Superbad. It is. People, totally. people, people really, when it came out, people were like, oh, you can't watch that movie. I remember uh-huh. that. And I was like, what? And then I was like, well, I don't know if I want to watch it. It looks like a dumb teen movie. And but but it actually is a good movie. It elevated that genre, which was bad. Yeah, struggling for a long time. Exactly. And Everyone that kind of loves McLovin. Yeah. McLovin. <laughs> Whatever happened to that guy? It's that ID, that Hawaiian ID. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I know. Uh, but no, and so super bad. And then you know it, she was in a bunch of stuff after that, Spider Man and and Crazy Stupid Love. But then Birdman was 2014. That's where I think she was nominated. For, for Best Supporting Actress, I'm almost positive for Birdman, but it was La La Land that really was like, I think, cemented her as like, oh, she's now in the upper echelon of, yeah. of Actress royalty. It was, and and it was such a popular movie, mm-hmm. but I, I actually liked her in Birdman better. I think she has drama. She was in Cruella, I think. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cruella recently. Last and a bunch, of, a bunch of other flicks, but yeah. And The Favorite, another Yorgos Lanthimos movie, which I loved, The Favorite. Uh, that was one of my favorite movies of that year. My favorite movies was The Favorite. It was like my number two, I think, of that year. So she was great in that. And yeah, so she's really, I read somewhere that she's the highest paid actress these days, which is like so bizarre to me. Cause I'm, but like when you think about it, I guess, you know, she's young, she's hungry, she can do anything. I mean, there you go. That's interesting. Why is that? I wonder what, what a, I know she's great. But like I don't always I don't think of Emma Stone as a superstar. She's almost has a character actress qualities, but she doesn't. She's a lead at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think she's because she's got you know the big kind of like doughy eyes and like totally. the I don't know maybe it's she's relatable in some way. 
there is there's kind of a girl next door quality to her because she doesn't have like a stunning you know like like a classically beautiful face but like she is beautiful i don't know she's it's not just... scarlett johansson right but she's like yeah and, and and i don't mean this like i'm not like putting women on like, no, a, like no, here's no, no, my no. tim's tier system of who's most beautiful no of course what, not. I, what i'm saying is like there is there are kind of these archetypes you know and and i would say emma stone kind of was what i would say is more like that early 2000s quirky yes jack black might be in a film with her you know that kind of stuff (laughs) totally yeah so which i think is very cool but i Mm -hmm. don't yeah i don't i don't you don't think of her like on the same level as like meryl streep or uh who we talk julianne moore but she is she is she is so it's just a different a different thing yeah yeah so she's probably gonna win an oscar tim and that's gonna make her even more uh, Hollywood expensive? royalties. More expensive. <laughs> exactly. Only Spielberg gets her now. <laughs> All the studios are like, her price went up. It was already high. Yeah. yeah. I know. But hey, do you know what was so great is there's another performance that I think is almost equal to Emma Stone. Almost. It's supporting. But Mark Ruffalo, man, I think this is Mark Ruffalo's <laughs> best performance that I've ever seen him. And it was just so different. So he plays this guy named Duncan who is so like, he has this like weird accent and... <laughs> What is it about this guy that just like lights up? The, I just I couldn't get enough of it. Honestly, I think it's just he's so base. He's like, so base. He's a, yeah, yeah. He's, he's like a, a bon ball. vivant. Like what he likes to do, he just likes to seduce women, drink a lot, <laughs> yeah, and then like live and gamble. Yeah, and gamble. he's James. He really. So what he really is is James Bond, uh, like a poor man's James Bond, like the kind of Bond that like gambles and then gets drunk and no, like he's is just snoring James, in bed. So, so, so I think like like a schlubby would, James Bond. No, I would say he's James Bond, right? What? In every way, he's wins at the gambling. He travels the world. He has the girl, right? Yeah, he's sexually gifted. He's got all these things, right? That, and okay. men like him. Like they think he's a cool guy. Sure. I think it's really important that he is like James Bond. And that they that he gets mocked because it's because that James Bond character is absolutely ridiculous. He really is. <laughs> it kind of shows James Bond for who he really is. Yeah. 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 I mean, like he's drinking. Mart- he just drinks martinis and has sex and like seduces women. Like that's just it's just a lousy character. Yeah, like it's, it's a lousy, a lousy it, human being. And, it, well, and what's what, what's interesting about it is that Bella ends up exposing him for just how like shallow and stupid he is, right? Like as a as a person, like Bella mm-hmm. like totally ruins this guy's life without even meaning to. She doesn't. She's just like you know, like he basically thinks that he can subdue her and control her and like have fun with her, and he she ends up like just Make turning him, crazy. him inside out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's funny is that he connects with her while she still has like an adolescent brain mm-hmm. and they connect actually at that. Like, Oh, this feels good. Why don't we do this all the time? Talking about sex, right? Let's just have sex all the time. And then he goes, he's like, Oh great. I found the perfect person for, you know, to exercise my will on. Yeah. But then it totally backfires on him because he doesn't develop anymore. And she does. She, she develops into up. a more full person. Yeah. Realizes James Bond is kind of adolescent and stupid. Yeah. Right. I'm telling you, this is my theory about this. <laughs> so um, the other part about him is, yeah, so I think that he is basically like an adolescent. He's stuck at that adolescent level, and that's why they can only really connect when she's at that level. Yeah. Yeah. So as soon as she moves past that, okay, and then I think it's funny because sex is used to mock him because... She wants to have sex all the time and he's not capable of it. And it's not just that he's not capable of it. Men aren't capable of it, Hmm. which I thought was really (laughs) interesting. So she's like, I could have sex, like just keep 
having sex all I want. I'm capable of doing that as a woman. Yeah. I can have an orgasm, you know, as much as I want to. And then with him, he's like, well, I'm like the best. And I, I just did this three times and I'm done. And I'm tired. <laughs> right. He's like, like, well, let's so, go to sleep. So then she kind of, she deems him not even adequate for his base behavior. Like he can't yeah. even do what he wants to do. That's awesome. That's, <laughs> that's so great. I love it. Yeah. Like, she's like, no, I've already outpaced you here. And you're now you're not even capable of doing what I want. And she kind of basically discards him. She's just like, yeah, I'm ready to move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like not in a cruel way. No, just kinda, no. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was a really funny scene because it is a comedy. It's a comedy. It's a dark comedy. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a dark comic parable, sort of. You're not supposed to take it too seriously. And um, it's just, like genuinely funny. And Mark Ruffalo is so funny in this. Like he he kept making me laugh out loud. He's just, it's hilarious. He reminds me a little bit of, do you, do you remember Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Totally. Where he's got his cowboy hat and his <laughs> and whitey tighties and he's dancing <laughs> yeah. on the bed. Totally. Yeah. He's like <laughs> basically like meddling with people's lives. Like very flippantly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there was a little bit of that young Mark Ruffalo in this performance where he's mm-hmm. just, he's kind of absurd. Yeah. I saw an interview with him where he was sort of like, he's, he, you could just tell he's so refreshed at doing this role after <laughs> like being in Marvel movies for the last, I don't know, decade. It feels like. <laughs> And he basically was trying to say this without saying it. He was like, you know, sometimes you get on a path in Hollywood where, you know, people start expecting just this one thing from you over and over again. And then it's really nice to do something else. And it's like, yeah, I get it, man. I get it. You wonder like what he could have done had he not been. What is he? Is he the Hulk? He's the had Hulk. he not been the over Hulk? Over and over. I know. Yeah. I know. And that's such a limiting role. It is. It is. And it's like not I look, I'm not saying that you can't do action movies and comic book movies, but like once you enter that universe, it's kind of like you're signing up for what, seven movies or something? And it is. It's just really a time issue. You're like, what else could he have done with his career if he hadn't sort of had that obligation weighing on his back? Because he's such a good actor. Yeah. I really, really like him. Yeah, he's great. And he like was good all the way back in You Can Count on Me with Laura Linney. That was his big breakout role. He you that's a movie that holds up and he's so good in that. And he's been mm. he's just like done a lot of great things. So Mark Ruffalo. Oh, and the, if you're talking about TV, his he has an HBO series called I Know This Much Is True. Very dark, very painful to watch, but he plays twin brothers. He plays both brothers, and one of them has schizophrenia, and it's about the brother taking care of this other brother. And, like, man, that's a performance hmm. for the ages, too. So he can do anything, and he's great, and I love that he's back doing non-Marvel things because... Yes. So worth, yeah, definitely he was funny, funny, funny. <laughs> I know. He'll be nominated for an Oscar, but he's not going to win probably, but like he should because he's so good. His misery is so funny. His misery. <laughs> exactly. With like my favorite part was when he's in the, spoiler alert, when he's in like the mental institution at the end and he's just like so desperate. She's ruined my life. <laughs> This so, is like, so great. The woman that he's trying to like seduce and use has ruined him. Mm-hmm. Or when he's on that park bench and she just whips out some money and he's like, you had money the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love yeah. it. So, all right. Last person we'll talk about with acting is Willem Dafoe. Look, I don't think this is like an amazing Willem Dafoe performance. I think he's done other things that were more notable, but it also is kind of like who else could play this character? It's hard to imagine anyone else in the role because it's just such a perfect, quirky, weird Willem Dafoe performance. I don't know. What do you think of him as Godwin? Good. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, solid, yeah, I right? don't know yeah. who else you're going to have do it. He really is like the, 
he's like Willy Wonka of organ transplants or whatever. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so awful. Um, yeah. It's like, he's maybe like, you shouldn't be messing with people's bodies. But but he's also kind of like not devious about it. Like there is a weird like morality. He's not having sex with Emma Stone's character. He's not trying to take advantage of her. He genuinely believes what he's doing is going to help humanity in some way. And he cares about her, right? So he's not, I wouldn't call him an evil person, but also like maybe you shouldn't be putting baby brains in women. Like that's weird. So what's interesting about him that I think makes him... And this gets into like the whole design of that character because this is like absurd, but it's also metaphorical. Mm-hmm. Is the idea that his body, everything he knows, was because of the scars he has? Yeah, and his dad did that to him, right? Yeah, this father figure who everybody thinks of as so brilliant basically destroyed his body in his own pursuits and treated him like he owned his body, which is part of this feminist thing. So the idea of that someone would own someone else's body to do whatever they want with that body because they have a, some grand plan for Mm -hmm. it. That's so feminist. And so, and I think it's not just feminist. It's also like you get that with anybody who wants to own someone else's body and control it. And so I think that that's where they connect. That's where he's capable of being a nurturing fatherly type figure for her. Is that somebody basically used his body Mm -hmm. and destroyed it in order to get whatever they wanted from him without regard for him as a human being. And so I think that's the feminist narrative, right? Is we're just going to use your body. I mean, that's the same thing that the uh, Ruffalo character is doing. I'm going to use your body to get what I want. But it feels different even though... Yeah, like it doesn't feel like Willem Dafoe's taking advantage of her, but he is. I don't know. It's kind of like more of a subtle like violation than someone who just literally wants to use you because they don't care about you at all. I don't know. No, I I don't think he's doing that. I would say he can relate to someone doing that to him mm-hmm. so that he can relate to her. But at the same time, he's kind of doing that to her, right? So it's like a, it's complex, but I think that his suffering at the hands of someone where he was not in power allows him to connect to what she deals with well and he doesn't even have like a stomach or what is it like he does this weird burping oh, he's a thing. eunuch yeah he burps bubbles, burps bubbles. <laughs> but he's like, also a eunuch he's he doesn't oh, yeah. have the ability to have sex so he's yeah, well, that was taken from him and that's what people eventually want to do to emma stone's character of bella is they want to take her ability to have pleasure during sex mm. which i, I yeah <laughs> There's a lot going on there. It's a, it's like feminism, man. Like totally. it's straight up. It's straight up like the whole thing. It's just like a very funny but not funny approach. Entertaining but not entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Willem Dafoe does a good job. Wisconsin native. Went to school at UWM. Never forget. <laughs> All right, let's talk about cinematography. So Robbie Ryan is a cinematographer here. I think probably the best thing about this movie, I'm, well, I mean the acting, of course, but like the from a technical standpoint, it is hard to think of anything else that's been better that I've seen in 2023. Like this movie is alive in a way that I've not seen from any other film where it's just like the colors, the 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 fisheye lenses, the black and white, the dance scenes, the way things are choreographed, the kind of the surreal like I don't even know how to describe it. It's sort of like it's set in our world but not our world. It's like the ship looks doesn't even look real. Like they're going on this ocean that looks like it's in a it's painting. Got some, I, like it's got like the fisheye 
It's got yeah. the Victorian, all this Victorian stuff. It's got a steampunk kind of vibe going. Steampunk, yeah. Yeah. It's So it's got all that stuff going, but it's not an, oh, a heavy-handed steampunk. People aren't wearing like top hats and brass goggles or anything like that. It's a very subtle, like, something's not... This isn't exactly how it was sort of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And not playful. Like, Wes Anderson's would be playful. Yeah. This one would be like, almost like you're looking at an old book full of uh, mechanical drawings. <laughs> you know, it's not... It doesn't have yeah. like whimsy to it. It's a coldness to it. And then every a lot of vaginal everything. Like, did you mm. notice that? Uh, I didn't, but now that you mentioned it, <laughs> yeah. So, like, the whole end credits are like vaginal architecture. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hopefully, that's not just me seeing things, but yeah, no, it is. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very interesting. What do you think about the cinematography, though? It looks so good, right? Just bursting with life. I think it's just different. It is. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel like you're more that you're there a little bit. I think the fisheye accomplishes. Because it's got such a weird, the depth of field is so bizarre in a fisheye. Yeah. You know, you could do a fisheye without having it be so exaggerated, but that's not the point. So I think that in so many scenes that fisheye is used. It's used effectively. How about that dance scene on the cruise ship? There's just something about it. Like, it's just so random, but then it's like so perfect in that moment, right? Where they're just sort of like, I forget exactly the context, but she wants to dance or something. And then they just go. And then you got Ruffalo and her doing their thing all around. Mm-hmm. And like the camera just swoops around and follows them. It's just such a delightful moment in, in the movie. I don't know. There's so many little things like that. It's good. Yeah. I would, I don't know if I would call it groundbreaking, but I think it's the most, it stands out the most of any cinematography I've seen this year. Yeah. So Robbie Ryan, the writer, it was, so there, originally this was a novel by Aladair Gray and then Tony McNamara wrote the script. And so pff, quite a story we got going on here. We've already sort of given you the synopsis. It's a very clever script. I think there's a lot of laugh out loud lines. I love her euphemisms for sex. I thought that was endlessly delightful. Furious jumping, I think. <laughs> <laughs> great so it's a good script yeah and i always appreciate a movie that shows you life from a different perspective like i think this had a little bit of curious case of benjamin button vibes you know where you're kind of like you're seeing normal life from a completely different vantage point that actually makes you re-examine life as a whole you know i think it's a nice technique when you come across that and that's what this one does so it's a pretty good script so what do you think how do you think Frankenstein influences this? We talk about this all the time. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, it is a Frankenstein story, right? She was he. She even calls Godwin God, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. But like, that's not unintentional. And right. like, he created her. He created a different version of her because we end up finding out what her past was, and it was not good. And then he kind of rebirthed her into this sort of hybrid new person. And yeah, totally Frankenstein vibes. It's interesting, like what the monster in Frankenstein does, you know, versus what Bella does. Tell me, because I don't know, Tim, and I'm going to be embarrassed, but I don't think I've ever actually sat down and watched a Frankenstein movie. So you tell me what Frankenstein does. Well, so like the idea of like, so so Frankenstein's not bad, but the idea that he would be a menacing thing, that he would be a threat to, I mean, it's all, that's a metaphor for some other stuff. But he would be a threat to people and violence would be how he acts out. And then, but that's not Bella. Bella, so she acts out with sex, right? Yeah. And, and it wouldn't even be acting out. It would just be developmental, you know, for her developmentally appropriate behavior. 14 right. year olds are obsessed with sex. Sorry, hate to break it to you, but like, this is kind of what happens. <laughs> yeah. But in the beginning, like with all of her, the way she walks, the way she moves, she's very Frankenstein. And by the end, She's very refined. Yeah. Drinking a martini or whatever, or a mint, whatever she's drinking. In that patio scene at the very end. Yeah, yeah. At the end. 
So, yeah, it's interesting. And then the music, are we going to talk about the music? Tell me about the music. Yeah. It was all super distorted and like, wah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. so that it wasn't like a pure tone. So throughout it, you have these, the music, which is highly distorted, and then the lenses are highly distorted. So you get this surreal distortion that is in every scene. Great point. And so like they work together. Yeah. Everything is working together to create this weird, dark, surreal take on life. Yeah, exactly. And that's the cinematography. That's the script, the the music. Yeah, it's all going there. And, of course, headed up with Miss on Scene by the man of the hour, Yorgos Lanthimos. Now, Tim's a fan of Yorgos. I am occasionally. I like hated the lobster. Loved the favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's He's one of those guys that just sort of is going to always do, I feel like for better or worse, he's going to do what he wants to do. He's not, you know, there are some directors who I think always are thinking about the audience. I think Spielberg's always thinking, how is this going to be received by my audience? Yorgos kind of feels like a guy that's like, I'm going to do this thing. If you don't like it, that's fine. If you do, great. You know, welcome to the party, you know? <laughs> Yeah. He's kind of like a mainstream absurdist filmmaker. He's like mm. your probably has more in common with like artists than with like Spielberg. And now I know mm-hmm. you people, oh, Spielberg's an artist. Painters or like, something like. Yeah, like Salvador Dali or yeah. like, uh, I mean, just his images, his concepts, he's, or Picasso maybe. He just seems to be more than willing to push the envelope like what you're saying, and just doesn't care. But he's also accessible because it's so good that you... It's such a, such a high caliber. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's... Oh, well, I can watch this. It's watchable. Mm-hmm. It's not so far out there. Yeah, exactly. I think for the positives... Well, what do you think, first of all? Like, what do you think he brings to this as a director? I'll, I'll put it in your core first before I get to my take. What does he bring to it? I think... I mean, we talked about cinematography. We talked about the the story i mean he's bringing all the people together for the, but then his it's just the core he's able to make a just a quirky feel i don't even know how to talk describe that but that's it right that's what the director's in charge of is tone and performances and exactly yeah so it's just on the verge of alienating us but not quite and he's able to have us begin to develop empathy for an absolutely terrible creature a suicidal woman who had an infant brain put in her own infant's brain put into her body and we're able by the end of it to have empathy, like a deep mm. sense of like connection and going, Oh, this, this is a good person, you know, Yeah. where before it's like, she's not a monster. So he takes us from the monster to the, to where we see her as a human being. That's hard. That's a feat that he pulls off there. How do you pace that? Yeah. It's almost like you have to have villains in the film in order to have her develop like to see her goodness. Mm-hmm. Even when she is being a prostitute, right? Which we would say, wow, that's like last, that's the last thing anybody would probably want to do. She's like, no, this is like a social experiment and I can like get some space and actually learn who I am. And then she becomes a socialist. She's, I am my own means of production. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So that she's fully, even as a prostitute for her, it's a liberation, which is so freaking bizarre because she's making choices with her body to do that which to me is like oh my gosh like that's a it doesn't really reflect reality in some cases not but not really too much but even that for her was like better than being married to a guy that's just using her for her body it was much better to be a prostitute i will say that i kind of 
struggled a little bit. I was kind of like with the whole movie until it got to that brothel part. Yeah. And then I feel like, cause that thing goes on forever. And like, I didn't understand fully what they're trying to do with that, you know, because I feel like she was on this path. That's sort of a wisdom path. Like you talked about, you know, where of course she's going to be obsessed with sex when she's got a 14 year old brain. That makes sense. And then she keeps progressing. Then she meets that cynic and starts understanding like different worldviews. She sees the poor and understands like, wow, like different dimensions to life so she's on this upward path but then she's just in this brothel for like 40 minutes of the movie it feels like well, i thought know. it was i think that she met the cynic and the the cynic and the woman who's like kind of fully matured human being the older lady oh yeah that's what she represents who's that's like interesting very sec- yeah yeah who's very secure in herself and they actually look very similar at the end of the movie like Good and point. then she meets the cynic and then she deals with like I think one of the key things, like, can you improve the world or not? Mm-hmm. So the cynic goes, no, no, you can't, you can't improve the world in any attempt that that's futile. And she's like, you're just a scared little boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And he kind of agrees with her. He's like, perhaps I am, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so the cynic is even unable to progress like to a full human being. And the cynic shows her what the world is really like. Here's how everyone else really lives. Here's babies being murdered, you know, all these other things. And here's how the poor are. The cynic is kind of stuck at a stage of development, sort of like our poor James Bond character, though a much higher stage, but still stuck, right? Because Mm -hmm. he can't see past it. Yeah. And then I think the brothel happens after that. So they get kicked off the ship because she gives away all the money to the poor, which it never makes it to the poor because some some of those those guys on the boat are going to take it. Gives away all of uh, Duncan's money. So good. Right. And she's like, well, of course I did. So he he's ruined. And so they have no money. And then she basically does prostitution in order to have a room at first. And then later on to she embraces it as like, hey, this is like a grand experiment in humanity is to basically be a prostitute. Yeah. Like in the brothel, she makes she has money in her coat the whole time. She didn't have to go to the brothel at all. That's true. Like she could have easily done something else. But in the brothel, she makes her choices about her body. And she enters into an actual agreement with the women. And she finds real companionship with the... I don't remember the actress's name. They they are, you know, have a sexual relationship, but also I think the main thing is she finds friendship and companionship with another prostitute, another woman. Yeah. And so they, you know, really can understand each other. And, and so that that's like the true, the the first like kind of real relationship is developing, right? Is that one. And then maybe with the woman on the ship. I do like that, how she kind of becomes the woman on the ship in that last scene. Like she's sitting on the patio. She's fully secure in herself. You know, even that woman on the ship, I think what Duncan does this weird drunken thing where he's like, I'm going to go killer and she's kind of the woman on the ship's kind of like okay you know it's sort of like i'm not resort passive but like you're just she's just totally secure in herself which i think is the ultimate stage of development mm-hmm. yeah she doesn't feel threatened by the men mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at all yeah and so even within her prostitution like she's not there because she's afraid mm-hmm. she's there because on her own terms which is like oh this is how this works even if you don't even if they're stinky I, we still do this yeah and then she is bargaining with the the madam too. Like, hey, what if we did this? What if we which I think this is where this is so much more feminist than Barbie movie even. Which would be what if we let instead of letting the men chose a woman, we'll have the women choose the men and then the men will know that they got chosen. 
<laughs> that they're wanted yeah yeah and i was like whoa that's it right there isn't it so it's like instead of like they that's line good. up a bunch of women and they go who wants this man and then mm-hmm. she's like and then they would feel like they're actually wanted <laughs> yeah i love I that. that was kind of magical yeah so but definitely i think that the whorehouses the brothels needed for that film I think it's needed. And then it wraps up with understanding her old life and dealing with her crazy ex-husband. Yeah. What she does to him though, is that wisdom though? Like, you know what I mean? Like I was, I struggled with that too at the end because like she does this, ends up doing this horrific thing to him. Now maybe you could argue it's just sort of the, again, you're not supposed to take any of this too seriously, but it feels like, is that the final stage of development? Like mistreating another human being like you were mistreated? I don't know. Yeah. I think it's fun. I it's think fun. that's why they did Perky. it. It's fun yeah. to get revenge on somebody who's so awful because he's, he's trying to take, he's basically trying to f- circumcise her Yeah. in the end. And he's a tyrant of his household. Yeah. And they bonded over cruelty, which I thought was the weirdest. That was very strange to me. And I have to think more about that. It's like, well, what brought us together? And he's like, cruelty. You're like, you were cruel, you know, and so am I. And we both enjoy being cruel to others. Ugh. That's intense. And he's a warrior. I mean, he's like the head of a, he's a general, right? Yeah. And so his solution is violence and cruelty to make people submit by taking control of their body. Mm-hmm. Ay, ay, ay. Yikes. So let's talk about some more themes. Bella refers to Godwin as God throughout the movie. We talked about the Frankenstein element. What else do you think is going on there? Uh, I like. There's elements of Godwin that I think remind me of, you know, like what God would be like. And I think one of them is he, the willingness to go, go ahead and I don't agree with what you're going to do, but go ahead and do it because I'm not going to stop you. Mm-hmm. And he does that over and over again. He does. He's very gentle in that manner. He's careful about who he, like he creates this perfect environment that she decides she has to get out of, which is very Eden-esque, right? Yeah. So her perfect environment, she's being waited on hand and foot. Everything she's doing is being observed. He's treats her like a daughter. Every every need she has is being taken care of. And there's she's surrounded by, you know, basically a community of care for her. Now she's like, No, this isn't enough. I need to get out of this, which is the right response. And he doesn't stop her. He lets her go, which was surprising to me. Yeah. He doesn't try to control her. He doesn't try to control her sexuality either like not her sexuality but her her, he doesn't control how she uses her body so like from throwing plates to masturbating to like running away to going to see the city all those things he's like well i don't agree with this but you know go ahead and she's welcomed back you know when she comes back yeah every time and so i think there's something about that that has grace but also he always clearly communicates his desire too so i i always think like That sounds more like God to me as far as the Christian God, which is always returning. Like no matter what, we always return, cares about us. But then I also see like she needed to go on her journey too. Yeah. And he didn't stop her and that was good. And scarred. I thought that was the first thing I thought was the idea of him being so broken and scarred. Like he's got so many scars every single place he's been had his, he's been castrated he's had his genitals taken away. He's been used. And so the idea is that he can empathize with her because of that. And the idea that then we serve 
uh, God who came and did the exact same thing, right? He went, walked in our shoes, went through everything that we go through as humanity, knows what hunger feels like, knows what thirst feels like, knows what it's like to be tortured and killed, and yeah, a scarred God. Yeah, and a God who had his body abused. The crucified Christ gave a, you know, he, obviously there's will, issues of will, but his body was tortured and mutilated. Yeah. And, and put into the hands of other people for their own, to do whatever they wanted with. And so I think one of the critiques that you hear in feminism is I can't relate to a male God, right? Mm-hmm. Which is legitimate. And I wouldn't say God's male. No, no. I always refer to defer to he because that's what I grew up with, but I hate using it because it's so ridiculous. It's right. like if God created men and women, then obviously both of them are equally contained inside of him. So to say he is so stupid. Yeah. Well, we, and we have Jesus, right? That's how we, that's what we get. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we get Jesus. That's what we see. But yielding his body, I mean, he gives up his body and blood for us. To me, that's very, uh, that has to be, and I don't know, because I'm just, like I said, I'm a white male, middle-aged guy. But the idea that somebody took control of his body to do whatever they wanted with, that has to connect to a lot of different people. Like yeah, to and to think that God went through that and knows what it's like to ha- not be in control of your body, knows what it's like to be oppressed by a system that you know regards you as worthless. Yeah, that has to connect with right, exactly. So, if at the heart of colonialism, racism, and uh, chauvinism, and and, a, and a men oppressing women, if, if at the heart of that there's the control of someone else's body, that Christ has to speak to that. And so, I like I like I think that's where I find the gospel overlap with this. Yeah, that's beautiful. Which is, God went through this. It doesn't mean that God endorses this. God went through this. And so that God can be relatable in this area too. Not 100%, but to some certain degree. Hmm. Let's talk about hedonism that's presented in this movie. Because I got to tell you, man, I relate to it. I definitely, I think we all do to some extent. Like, you know, that whole kind of, Wally idea of uh, you know floating around in a pod and eating things all day and watching things all day, you know. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, so- <laughs> I uh, unfortunately yes. <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of person that like give me some chicken alfredo and five movies and and I'm good. You're good to go. Yeah. yeah, but we see what Bella you know experiences. This she wants to have sex all the time because she's got this sort of adolescent mind, and we see what happens. It's like the the little what is it? the the truffle that she not truffle but like the the cake she eats or whatever. She just keeps wanting to eat those, but then. What do we see? It's like she just eventually throws up because it's just too much. It's all too much. The sex is too much. The food is too much. And it's, I think that we get, I think that's what kind of sucks about being human. Like, I kind of hate this about ourselves is that, like, as much as you would think that endless pleasure and endless comfort would actually be the way to go as a human being because it feels so good, too much of it makes us into worse versions of ourselves and actually does not help us in the end. We need limits. We need suffering, you know, to sort of wake us out of our comfortable slumber. And like, I just think that's, just, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. So I, I've mentioned this Aristotle stuff before. I've got a Greek guy, right? So you know he's got to know some Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. We would hope. We would hope. I was thinking about what you're saying right now and the idea of like virtue ethics, which is Aristotle. I think about it a lot. And the idea of this hedonistic approach to things, which is whatever is going to give me pleasure right now, as fast as I can get this pleasure and as much as I can, that's what I want. 
So that's like when you talk about hedonism, yeah, you see that in Bella in her early stages. And then Aristotle talks about developing virtue. And so the idea, and the Apostle Paul actually kind of co-opts some of these Aristotle ideas, but we don't need to talk about that. But the idea of, well, how do we become more fully developed people? Well, we have to trade our lesser virtues for greater ones. Hmm. So instead of basically just pushing this button to get the, you know, human chow or whatever the thing is that it brings us pleasure, that we would say, no, I'm not going to do that because I want something better than what this is. So it's like, how do we cultivate the virtue? I think it's hard these days. It's hard. Because there's so much pleasure available. Like you said, click of a button with sex. You know, you can mm-hmm. get anything you want. Endless entertainment on your television. Endless. It feels like everywhere we go, we're surrounded by it. And it's hard to how escape do I, How do I get a dopamine hit? I mean, it's as easy as getting a like on your social media. Yep. I mean, that's like one level of dopamine. But like a lot of our, our day, all day long, we're seeking a dopamine hit. So Totally. Food. So your lasagna, your pod, right? <laughs> or not no. lasagna, your fettuccine. My fettuccine Alfredo. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, we're trying to get these dopamine hits. And a lot of times it's on Netflix, right? We're trying to get mm-hmm. dopamine hits off of what we're watching, how we're being stimulated. And so I think Aristotle and I think in the Gospels, like, no, we got to develop character. And we got and, and we got to have virtues, which are things that are better than just a dopamine hit. Even just the simple, like, automatic go into your phone. You know, I'm bored, phone, scroll, scroll, scroll. It's just like, yeah, we're always looking for it. And you're right. So what would you consider, what are the higher virtue ethics that we should be attaining for? Like, what did he so say? So there's all these virtue lists, but like I would say like, he would say like, it's like notes on the piano. You got to do certain things at certain times. So that virtue isn't just like, it's not a fundamentalist concept. It's a, like like music, Right. Mm -hmm. So the music calls for this note at this time and this chord at this time. And, and, and it has to be in this timing and all, you know, it's so, so all those elements have to come together. And that there's a time for pleasure, you know, because you also don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is, of course, what happens in a lot of fundamentalist circles. It's sort of like pleasure is bad and I feel guilty now because I'm wasting time watching this movie when I could be, you know, saving the world or whatever. (laughs) Right. But even like I was in the British Museum. I know it sounds so snotty, but I was in the British (laughs) Museum last week and like there's whole like it's like half the museum is a Dionysian. Which is like, get drunk and have group sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, so, and there's a cult, like there's a religion that's get drunk and have group sex with Dionysius at the head or Bacchus in the Roman terms. And so like, that's where you get like Bacchanalian, right? So I'm in the British Museum and like people, it's popular. Like, so it's not like everyone's like following Aristotle and like trying to develop virtue. No, no, it's the Bacchus is way more popular. Mm-hmm. Dionysius is way more popular, which is pleasure. Let's just go drink as much as we can and have as much sex as we can. And it's the Mark Ruffalo character. Push the button, push the button, push the button. They even had in vomitoriums where you would eat as much as you could and then you would puke and then you'd eat again. Holy yeah. cow. It's like real like devotion to pleasure and dopamine. And they wouldn't have called it, you know, and, and, and then they do it and, and they, it becomes a religious context for it too. Like you're doing it in a temple context anyway. So in the ancient world, this is, this is not new. The ancient right. world's all over this. And I think what we see, you know, in a virtue ethic, you're saying, well, what do I, you know, what's the bigger picture? Who do I want to become? And what's my goal? Like, it, so they talk about the telos in virtue ethics, which is what is the ultimate goal of you know, who I want to become in the context of my community and what do I do that, what decisions do I make that will help me get me to that place? 
And you feel that in those moments where I think we all have those moments where we just sort of give up for a little bit and kind of sink into pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. You feel that you're losing your your essence. You feel like there's something that you're losing in that trade off. Yeah. But I think like when you talk about like a, like a greater pleasure, right? So would you have a greater pleasure watching a bunch of movies or making a movie? Sure. Making a movie, even despite the fact that it's going to be challenging, that there's going to be moments where you just want to like die because it's so hard, right? But then mm-hmm. you're right. Well, the ultimate pleasure that waits at the end of that rainbow is so much better than the mindless pleasure of just yeah. Passive. So like, I I would love to write a book, but instead I read a book and then I also listen to books. So like I'm not willing. So I don't want to exchange because the pleasure is too. It's too easy. Yep. And so it's not denying pleasure. It's actually with virtues. It's actually it's it's trading lesser pleasures for greater pleasure. That's so great. that you'd say, oh, I really do want this thing, or you know, the, and you see Stone's character do that throughout the movie. It's like I want to feel pleasure, but I want to feel a deeper pleasure. Yeah. So like the, the and the, those pleasures get identified with like you know like accomplishments or family life, like being a good parent. Mm-hmm. You could apply it to a, diff- a whole bunch of different scenarios. And it's like every step of those deeper journeys includes suffering. And it's like suffering has to be there for it to actually, for you to get a deeper pleasure that has roots. And I kind of hate that that has to be built into it, that making the movie is really hard, but watching it is really fun and easy. Like, I hate that. I hate that donuts are bad for you. You know, I don't know. It's just like, I kind of hate that the, that it's structured that way, but it seems to be, that's just the way it is. And like, we might as Christians look at this as like discipleship. Hmm. Unpack that. So discipleship would be like following, basically. I mean, you have a uh, something that you're following. So that's our telos. So we look at the life of Christ. We look at the scriptures, and we go, "This is the telos." We look at the like the character of who God is, and we would say, "This is our telos." But but most fully developed in Christ. Like we look yeah. at the person of Christ, and we there's other places. I mean, you see you see all this other thing, and we of course we see, but through a glass dimly, right? So we mm-hmm. don't know, have the total view of it, but we're getting some of it. So we look at the life of Christ, the teachings about Jesus, and we begin to go, well, how do we follow into this? And what things can we not bring with us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Or what things do we exchange because we want something else? Well, everything is permissible, but not everything's beneficial. It's, it's we don't have to turn everything into rules. You know, that's what mm-hmm. we always want to do as humans. But it's about like, yeah, what is holding us back from a pleasure that's better for us? Right. I guess one of the things I think about is like how to apply that. So if we have more and more and more sources of like instant dopamine, how can we become virtuous people? How can we follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. And I don't have an answer, but I don't think we even examine it. We don't even <laughs> think about it. I yeah, know. Right. I'm sorry. And I'm not saying I said we, you know, it's we, not like I'm literally blaming anybody you and me. here. Right. No, exactly. Right. So I, you know, I'm th- thinking about the dopamine that I'll get from, you know, the show I'm going to watch or think about the dopamine I'm going to get from the cheeseburger I'm going to eat or the sex I'm going to have or whatever. Like all those things are like, you know, they're right in the front forefront and they're so available to us right now. Yeah. It makes me go like, how do we even begin to have that conversation? And I'm not even talking about, I mean, we're talking with Aristotle. We're not even talking with Jesus right now. (laughs) (laughs) I think it applies. But I mean, that's this movie, right? I feel like what we're talking about seems kind of like we're talking, it's irrelevant, but that's actually what this movie is. It's sort of like, you have in it's a it's the plot device allows you to sort of see all of life from a different perspective and sort of examine it and yeah it's quirky and goofy and like you're not supposed to take it really seriously but at the same time i think 
there's depths to be mined here still in this film that sort of is like well, the paradox of it is everyone's going to say that this film's hedonistic. Correct. And But in reality, it's arguing against that. It's yes. going to say, no, colonial white male chauvinist behavior is hedonistic. And this is an alternative. Hmm. It's, we don't have to live like this. We could exchange it. We could have women reading books and drinking martinis and being doctors. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's what happens at the end. She's a doctor. She's having her martini. She has the people that care about her around her. She has power. That's all happening. And she has power over the person who drove her to suicide even. I mean, that's like wild. And he wanted to basically live his life as a base animal. And that's is almost like a absurd justice in that, you know? It is. You say he acts like an animal. And so she's like, all right, well, here you are. Yeah. You are an animal now. You're going to be in my barn. It's not like he's starving. She didn't murder him. He's a goat. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So for the listeners, you just, you, yeah, we're just going to spoil it. But yeah, they, he, the guy that's like the evil husband, they put, they took his brain and put it in a goat. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh. All right, Tim, what are your final thoughts on poor things and your letter grade? Go for it. Not for everybody. It's very difficult to watch in some ways. I'd give it an A. I just like I told the guy that was terrified at the end of the, at the movie theater, I'd say it was a good movie. I think it was creative, inspired, difficult to watch, hard to watch from my, I mean, like I examined myself during the movie. I don't know if you do these things too. I'm like, man, how have I acted like all of these men in the movie? Mm. Um, If you go in and you're trying to examine yourself, I think it's difficult. Also, like if you're objectifying, there's sex all through the movie and it's realistic sex. It's all through the movie. And as a man, if that's like, you're just getting totally sparked on that, like sexually. Well, maybe you are like more like Ruffalo's character yeah. <laughs> and you're missing the maybe point. Maybe there's a little bit of Duncan in you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you also, you know, I don't want to condemn anybody. You also might be a human being. Okay. Fair. Right. But I would give the movie a solid A. I have a hard time thinking that it can't win, that, that it wouldn't win Best Picture, but I know that Oppenheimer. It's going to be Oppenheimer. That's the, you know. For whatever reason, that's become the zeitgeist movie and it's going to win Best Picture. I think it's a done deal. I think that's absurd because, I mean, you like it a lot more than I do, but I think it's a B movie and I think it's super overrated and I'm really sad that it's going to win. But anyway, well, well let's disagree with all that. I, but I, do, I, I, I do. I do think that this movie was more groundbreaking. Yeah. So I can I, I, I don't agree that Oppenheimer's bad, but we disagree. <laughs> I didn't say That's bad. Right. I said overrated and in the B range. But yeah, a B movie. <laughs> I don't agree at all. But okay. Okay. Well, someone on Reddit agrees with me and I read that every day. <laughs> all right, fair enough. So what's your thoughts? Okay. So look, so I think so far in 2023, this is the best movie I've seen. There's no question. It's just like so much more alive than anything I've seen. It's just, it, and from a technical standpoint, it blew me away. So I, I don't know. Is it perfect? I struggle with it. I'm on the fence between an A minus and an A, but I mean, I was a little unsatisfied in, in the way the story took a turn at the end. But like every time that we sit down and talk about stuff, you make me think about things in a totally different way. I remember the same thing happened with La La Land. Like we were like, I was like, yeah, it's an A minus. I didn't like the ending. And then we start talking about it. And I'm like, gosh, you're right. You're right. It's yeah. So I'm thinking maybe on a second viewing. Well, you're, I might right all, you're always, you're always talking me into shows I would never watch. Yeah, that's the same true. thing. You're, and I think you're more like willing to go try stuff than I am. 
so and then you give me the report so i really appreciate that oh thanks man. but yeah but yeah i think i'm probably like if a gun to my head a minus but i think on a second viewing i could easily upgrade that but the best movie i've seen so far in 2023 i have a hard time believing anything else is going to top it but i still got to see some mm. other movies there's a movie called past lives and some other ones that i got to check out still so we'll see what happens but it is currently sitting at number one on my top 10 list so there you go wow strong review from both of us from both of us yeah that's it man that does it movies poor things it actually is still playing in a theater near you as of this recording i'm sure that it will because the oscar noms are going to be announced it's going to be up for a bunch i bet you this thing is going to be in theaters through february so if you want you could check it out is this a theater movie tim would you say it's worth the money if you're so inclined obviously content yeah because of the cinematography and the sound that's what I'm thinking too. Yeah, and the costuming too is so good. Mm-hmm. I bet it could. It's going to win for that for sure. It has to, right? Come on. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think they, it's just they've created such a world there. In yeah. The set design. Oh my gosh. So see it in the theater if you want to see this movie at all. Which no judgment if you don't. If you're not into vaginal architecture, yeah, vaginal. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe oh this isn't gosh. your cup of tea. <laughs> Might not be a cup of tea. So as I mentioned in the beginning, we don't operate by the calendar. It's still 2023. So what we're going to do, we're going to take off February. I'm going to do some Oscar write-ups. Join us in March for our annual Oscar discussion on Oscar night. Tim will be joining, hopefully. I haven't actually talked to him about this, but usually does join our little forum. I think last year we did it on Reddit. We you come to our Facebook page like the week of the Oscars and you'll see what platform it'll be on. But we always do like a live discussion sort of thing with the Oscars and it's always a good time. So check that out. And then we will be back for the official 2024 movie season in probably April, maybe March, uh, but might want to take a break after uh, in March and just like chill and not do anything for a little bit. And then we can start fresh. I don't know. We'll see. But. If you're not hearing this, listeners, John has been working his tail off to see all these movies, and it yeah. just is a lot of work. A lot of I work. haven't been. I'm just watching him watch them. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you've seen a lot of them. But. I've seen, and I've I think, seen a few. I just want to say to all our listeners that have gone on this 2023 movie journey with us, like, thank you for being here every month. Thank you for listening. Like, we love that you love what we have have to say. Like, I, I feel like we just ramble, and I feel like uh, I don't believe half the stuff I, you know, talked about a year ago. But I'm just so grateful for our listenership and how they support us. So thank you. Absolutely. And thank you, Tim, for yeah. joining me every month because this is like the highlight of my month. Just like being able to do a deep dive into a movie and see things I'd never even thought of. It's always fun. So thank you. It's a lot of fun, man. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. All right. Keep the faith, my friends. We will see you next time.